Well, if you have your Bibles or your scripture journals, and I hope that you do, I want to invite you to open with me to Luke and chapter 1. Luke and chapter 1. Uh, we are beginning our long-awaited Luke series this morning, and we're just going to look at the prologue. So we're just going to look at verses 1 through 4 in Luke's gospel. This will take us through the Advent season and beyond, all right? So uh, we're excited to start this series uh, today. We've been waiting for it for a spell. Um, if you want a scripture journal, there are some on the welcome desk. Feel free to grab that. They're four bucks a pop to help you kind of work through uh, the series and take notes and all that jazz, all right? So I'm feeling slightly eh, okay? It's not the vid, don't worry, all right? Your boy's vaccinated. But if I pass out, just turn the lights off and go home, all right? But God willing, we'll make it through, all right? Luke 1, 1 through 4, if you got it, say I got it. All right, let's, uh, let's read this together. God's Word says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the Word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Amen. God's Word and may God write its eternal truths on all of our hearts. In uh, 1739 America, there were not many people we would call or consider celebrities. Certainly nothing like what we have today, where celebrities abound and can seemingly appear or disappear overnight. But in 1730s and 40s, there, was a, there were a few celebrities... And you may be surprised to find out that perhaps the most famous person in the years surrounding 1739 was an Anglican itinerant minister named George Whitfield, probably the most popular Anglo in all of America during this time. Whereas today, celebrity pastors are yikes, George Whitfield was solid and very popular. He was so popular that thousands would flock, sometimes traveling 14 or more miles on horseback just to hear him preach in open fields. On one such occasion, thousands gathered in what I imagine was a very cold day in Bruton Parish Church in Virginia on December 16, 1739, and Whitfield preached a sermon entitled, What Think Ye of Christ? to an attentive audience. Among many other things, Whitfield said this, he said, some, and I fear a multitude which no man can easily number, there are amongst us who call themselves Christians and yet seldom or never seriously think of Jesus Christ at all. They can think of their shops and their farms, their plays, their balls, their assemblies and horse races, entertainments which directly tend to exclude religion out of the world. But as for Christ, the author and finisher of the faith, the Lord who has brought, bought poor sinners with his precious blood, and who is the only thing worth thinking of, alas, he is not in all, or at most, in very few of their thoughts. 1739. Whitfield's biggest fear was that America was teeming with unconverted professing Christians, and even unconverted ministers filling pulpits all across the land. And what was his diagnosis? That they didn't truly understand who Jesus was and did not live in light of the truths of Christ found 
in Scripture. So for Whitfield, the greatest questions every person had to answer were these. Who is Jesus? And who is Jesus to you? Now, as we turn our attention for the foreseeable future of the Gospel of Luke, our author seeks to confront us with these questions at every single turn. Luke wants every reader of the work he compiled to be confronted with the fact that Creator God has broken into history. And this should utterly alter the way humans live. That to be confronted with the Jesus of the Gospels for who He truly is will change everything about you. Do you believe that too? But we must come to know Him on His terms, not ours. Who was and is Jesus? Was He just a prophet? Was He a magician doing parlor tricks? Was He just a good moral teacher whose example we should follow? Or was He God in the flesh? King of the universe, the long-awaited Messiah coming to take away the sins of the world. If Jesus was one of the former, merely another in a long string of prophets, a magician or a good moral teacher, why care about anything he did or said? But if he was God in the flesh, you must do more than think he had some neat things to say. You must let him come in and completely rearrange your life and wreck your categories. C.S. Lewis once famously said that Jesus doesn't even give us the option of accepting him as a great moral teacher but not God. Lewis said that a man who was merely a man and said the sorts of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would be either a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. He said, you must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a bad man. You could shut him up, he said, for a fool. You could spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you could fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that option open to us. He did not intend to. And he said, now it seems obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. Our author Luke has set out to show with accuracy and truth that Jesus really was who he said he was. And that changes everything. Luke asks and answers questions like, what does it mean to respond to Jesus? And what are believers in the new community to be? The major burden of the gospel is to define Jesus' mission and that of the disciples who follow him, because he believes seeing Jesus for who he is will cause those who claim his name to follow with reckless abandon. What Luke's gospel does is it highlights the activity of a mighty and faithful God through Jesus, the promised one who shows the way and that salvation comes on the terms of his risen Savior. So today, as we begin our new study through gospel, the gospel according to Luke, we'll look at just the prologue, 
which will actually shed a lot of light on what Luke is setting out to do in this work that he has compiled. N.T. Wright calls the prologue, uh, Luke constructs a grand doorway, he says, into his gospel. He invites us to come in and make ourselves at home. Here we will find security, a solid basis for lasting faith. So this prologue is that doorway. So in our time together, we'll see four things, okay? Four things from the prologue that clue us in on what is to come in this gospel, okay? So point number one, we could trust that it is telling the truth. We could trust that it is telling the truth. One of the major things that Luke is doing in this prologue is to show us that he is accurately reporting what has happened in the life of Jesus. Okay, Luke is not guessing. He's not writing propaganda for a fledging movement. He's not inventing a fairy tale, nor is he saying, dude, just trust me. He is saying that what he is presenting is the result of, check it out, verse 1, the tradition that was passed on to him by, verse 2, people who were eyewitnesses to everything he is going to report from the beginning, verse 3, that the account was written carefully and thoroughly, and verse 4, to provide certainty and assurance about Jesus. So rather than Luke simply saying, hey, just trust me, he's actually providing proof as to why what he writes can be believed. And since he went and investigated these, thing, these things himself and is writing in the lifetime of people who were alive during Jesus' life and ministry, they could call into question what Luke wrote if it were wrong or inaf- inaccurate. This was written between 60 and 70 AD. Okay, so plenty of people who saw what Luke is writing about were still alive. It isn't like this fellow Luke is writing 300 years after the events where everyone he's reporting about has died and can't refute if he's wrong about something. It didn't like that. Instead, he is writing in the lifetime of these people he reports about and whom he received information from. So, like, say between, here's a silly illustration, but say between last Sunday and today, I went around telling everyone that at the climax of the sermon last week, I did a backflip, and pyro shot out of the pulpit, okay? That wouldn't work, would it? Not only because if I had tried to do a backflip last week, I'd be in a wheelchair this week, but because all of you could refute that claim, right? You could say, I was there, that dude definitely did not do anything even resembling a backflip, Further, we record the services, right? And you can just go back and look at the recording and see that this did not happen. Luke is writing things that he has investigated, and he writes during the lifetime of the eyewitnesses who could, if Luke were making all this up or got something wrong, could say, this is not what happened. On top of all of that, people in this context took the passing of stories with accuracy very, very seriously. Okay, it wasn't like Cordial, all right? They took passing information accurately, very, very seriously. Listen to N.T. Wright. He said, when Luke went around the villages of Palestine and Syria, listening to the stories told by the accredited storytellers, he would know he was in touch with solid, reliable evidence that went right back to the early events. So not only could Theophilus and the earliest readers know that what is being recorded is reliable, so could we. So could we. Because while following Christ requires faith, of course it does, 
It doesn't require only faith, you understand. When we think of and talk about faith, we might mean blind trust or belief in the absence of evidence or even that faith is the opposite of evidence. Or maybe that faith is like a leap in the dark. But Luke is saying here that there is evidence and he's providing it. That, that following Christ requires faith. Yes, of course, it does require faith to believe that God took on flesh, took on the sins of the world, died and resurrected. That does take a lot of faith, yes. But not only faith. It takes the head as well. You know, there's an old Indian poem. Every first-year philosophy student has heard this. Maybe you've heard something like it or it. Uh, the poem seeks to illustrate that people will believe what they want based on very little information or evidence, okay? And that the true picture can only be obtained if they combine what they have with the information that others have, okay? So the poem goes that six blind men went to see an elephant, okay? Even though they were blind. Have you heard this one before? Some of y'all? And the first one came up against the elephant's side, and he said, this is like a wall, then the next felt, felt the elephant's tusk and said, this is like a spear. Then the next one grabbed the trunk and said, this is like a snake. And the next one felt the elephant's knee and said, this is like a tree. And the next felt the elephant's tail and said, this is like a rope. So the, this is how the poem continues. He says, and so these men of Indistan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion exceedingly stiff and strong. Though each was partly in the right and all were in the wrong. So it says, so often theological wars, the disputants, I ween, rail on in utter ignorance of what each other mean, and prat about an elephant not one of them has seen. Okay, so now that's a neat poem. It's, it's cool for first-year philosophy students, and it's a neat little story. It makes a lot of sense, and it, it makes a compelling argument. But I want to ask this. What would happen if those blind men were groping at the elephant, and the elephant spoke and said, I'm an elephant? Right? <laughs> that's not a rope. That's my tail. That's not a spear. That's my tusk. That's not a tree. That's my knee. I'm an elephant. You dolts. Luke is showing from the outset that to believe these things about Jesus is not groping blindly at an elephant, as it were, but that the truth has come and spoken and revealed himself to us. And we can know these things based on the available evidence and careful research from reliable sources. Luke is saying, in essence, Theophilus, you have heard these things, you believe these things, and I confirm them all to be true. And more. Luke is saying that he has done extensive research and has spoken to eyewitness after eyewitness after eyewitness of what Jesus had done. Luke is not after printing propaganda to try to persuade people to believe in a lie. Luke, like any good investigative reporter or researcher, is after truth, and he's found it, and he's presenting it here. Says Thomas Schreiner in his commentary, eyewitness testimony indicates that early Christians were concerned about the veracity and heuristical facicity of the message they proclaimed. They were not writing pious myths to edify readers, but confessed that the message preached really happened. Luke having carefully researched Jesus, talking undoubtedly to apostles and followers of Christ and even Mary, he could conclude to Theophilus that what Theophilus had heard, what he has believed, is all true. Isn't that what he's saying in verse 4? That you may have certainty 
concerning the things you have been taught. In what way are they true? Luke is saying these are factual events and words from Jesus. These are the things he really said and did. Well, you have heard, you could believe. Now, you know, a big Star Wars fan, right? And you, you may also know that several years ago, Disney purchased the rights of Star Wars and began making movies and, and shows starting with Episode 7. Have you guys seen Episode 7? Wow. Good. It wasn't that good. But uh, it's called Episode 7, The Force Awakens. And even if you haven't seen them, you, you know the basic premise, right? And you, 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 you probably have seen at least the original trilogy, please. Yes? <laughs> One of the main characters, Han Solo, you know who he is? Give me something. Says that he, he's traveled all over the galaxy, okay? And he has seen no proof that the Force is real. So back in the original trilogy, he's like, I've traveled all over the galaxy. The Force is not real. I've, I've seen no proof. Now, when we're introduced to him in A New Hope, he says the Force is just a bunch of tricks. Now, you fast forward a couple decades in the movie that came out a few years ago, how Solo's back and he's talking to some new characters, and one of them asks, the Jedi were real? And Han Solo says, I used to wonder that about that myself. Thought it was a bunch of mumbo-jumbo, a magical power holding together good and evil, the dark side and the light. And he says, crazy thing is, it's true. The Force, the Jedi, all of it, it's all true. Our author of this gospel Luke is like Han Solo to Theophilus. He's saying, the things you've heard about Jesus, the virgin birth, the healings, the teachings, the crucifixion, the burial, the resurrection, the ascension, it's true. All of it. So what we have in front of us is a carefully researched document about Jesus and what he said and did. This isn't some guy's opinion. This is investigative journalism that could have been refuted during that time if it was false, but it wasn't refuted. Why? Because it's true. The rest of our points, okay, will flow out of this one, okay? So point number two, Luke's gospel is telling the truth about God's story. It's telling the truth about God's story. So what is Luke writing about? What is he telling the truth about? Sunday school answer says what? Jesus. <laughs> That's true. But what about Jesus? What is the story of Jesus? Luke says that he is taken up to compile a narrative about the things that have been accomplished and have been, been delivered to us by faithful eyewitnesses. This is the plan of God. And Luke makes the point throughout his gospel that this plan of God's came about just as God intended. And again, this is not just a story, okay? This is the story of what God is doing in the world. How he broke into space and time and walked the earth in order to bring the plan the Trinity laid out before the foundation of the world to fruition. This isn't just some story, you think of great events in human history, events that shaped history as we know it. You can think of reading accounts from the Revolution or from the Civil War. You can research and hear interviews with World War II vets talking about what they experienced and saw. Or like a month ago on the anniversary of 9-11, many people, maybe you saw these, but I don't know because you guys don't watch TV apparently, we're talking about a Hulu documentary called One Day in America, which offered eyewitness testimony and video that many had not seen before. 
and as important and moving and necessary as all of these things are to tell us who we are, what, what shaped us into a people, they all pale in comparison to the importance of what Luke writes about and what his eyewitnesses reported to him. Nothing in history compares to this. Luke is telling us the story of God, the story of a God who the Old Testament shows us lovingly pursues a stubborn people who continually spurn his grace, a God who has been alienated from man because of man's own fallenness and love for sin, a God who created perfectly so that the love of the Trinity could be shared with creation and now that creation rebelled against him. Luke is telling us that God's plans are never thwarted, but that all we see in the Old Testament is pointing to what he writes about here. Everything in the Old Testament is pointing to this, that all of human history before Christ's birth were pointing to Jesus. And everything that came after the ascension flows from Jesus. Jesus is the center of it all. And it has gone, is going, and will go exactly according to God's plan. We can say that like we said in Exodus. In history, God is the author, the director, producer, and principal actor. And so when Luke says that he seeks to tell of what has been accomplished or fulfilled, that is something God planned and his plans came about like he said they would. So Luke is telling us about God's story. And he's telling us that Jesus is the one at the center of God's story. Without Jesus, is there a story? Is there a story? There's no story. Without Jesus, the entirety of Christianity utterly falls apart. And according to Paul, we should just eat, drink, for tomorrow we die, and then there's nothing. Unlike other religions, the central claim of Christianity is irreducibly historical. Without Jesus and without what is written about him in the Gospels being true, there's simply no Christianity. Do you believe that? Oh, yikes. Do you believe that? I mean, <laughs> D.A. Carson said if somehow, if somehow you could prove that uh, the Buddha never lived, would you destroy the credibility of Buddhism? No, of course not. The plausibility and credibility of Buddhism depend on the internal coherence and attractiveness of Buddhism as a system. It depends not a whit on any historical claim. If you were to ask a Muslim, could Allah had he chosen to do so, given his final revelation to someone other than Muhammad? They may push back a little, but they would have to concede that of course he could. The revelation is not Muhammad. Revelation is entirely, they would say, the gift of Allah. Allah could have given it to anyone. Even the story of Joseph Smith finding them golden tablets could have happened to anyone else if it were true. No other religion would utterly fall apart without their founder being rooted in history. But Christianity would utterly collapse because Jesus is not only God's chosen means by which he revealed himself, Jesus is himself the revelation of God. You know, about a decade ago, check this out, a reporter asked the then Anglican Archbishop of Perth this question, okay? He said, if we discovered the tomb of Jesus and could somehow prove that the remains in the tomb were Jesus' remains, what would that do to your faith? 
You know what he said? He said, I wouldn't do anything to his faith. Because Jesus Christ has risen in his heart. This simply will not do. Luke is saying that this happened, God's story is revealed, and it's revealed in God in flesh who lived a perfect life, died a substitutionary death on behalf of sinners, and rose bodily on the third day. You can believe this as true, says Luke, and without it, we have nothing for this God's plan to rescue wayward humanity, to make all things new, and to invite man into his story by remaking them from inside out. Without Jesus, nothing was accomplished among us. In other words, says Carson, part of the va- validation of faith is the truthfulness of faith objects, uh, object, in this case, Jesus and his resurrection. This is telling of God's story, and at the center of God's story is the person of Jesus Christ. Without him... We have nothing. Because here's the other thing. Not only is what Luke writes verifiably true, not only does it contain the climax of God's story, but point number three, it's telling the truth of your part in God's story. It's telling the truth about your part in God's story. Let's consider a couple things. Luke's gospel is unique in a couple, several ways. One of the most glaring is that it's part one of two. You know that? It's the only gospel that has a sequel. What's the sequel? Acts. What does it show? It shows that the story of what Jesus did in the world did not end with his ascension, but continued and continues through the church. Darrell Bach says, the fulfilled events of the past continue to color how one should see the present. The effects of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection lives on. In Acts, Luke makes the point that Jesus continues to work in the world as the exalted Lord. Or again, consider the language that Luke uses in verse 1. Look at verse 1 again. These things happened, were fulfilled, have been accomplished, what? Among us. And with that language, Luke isn't simply saying that these things happened in his and Theophilus' lifetimes, but that the works of Jesus extend to all affected by salvation history. Therefore, believers past and present are united by these events and share in their significance. So when Luke says these things happened among us, he's including who? You. All of those who share in Christ's life through giving him their allegiance. Or just consider that the bulk, if you read through Luke leading up to the series, the bulk of what Luke shows us with Jesus is Jesus preparing his disciples for his departure and preparing them to minister in his absence. Why? Because he has brought them into his story and intends to continue the work in the world through them by the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke is showing us from the start to finish that God is inviting us into his story. Isn't that incredible? To be part of what he means to do in the world. That that God's story is expressed through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection means that the story of God is inextricably tied to rescuing wayward humanity. Think of it. Fallen man is alienated from God. You believe this? Rebels whose sins are an affront to their creator and so utterly fallen and alienated is man that 
even if he performed good deeds every moment of his life for a thousand lifetimes, they could not repair the damage done or build the bridge to bring them near a holy God. There's absolutely nothing man could do to get God and to mend the relationship. Isn't that true? But God was not content with this alienation. So he moved heaven and earth to get to man to bring him near. God's story is the story of his glory and his making all things new, including anyone who would bow knee to his chosen king, Jesus Christ. So what Luke is saying is that through Jesus, man is invited to be part of what God is doing in the world. We must not think of salvation as our bringing God into our lives, as some sort of additive to just help us to be better citizens or avoid an eternal hell or help us live our lives to the fullest or be our biggest cheerleader. You know, modern, many modern gospels seem to take this form, don't they? That, that God is something we add to what we are doing in our lives. Even our language of inviting Jesus or accepting Jesus can unwittingly communicate that Jesus is simply someone we could add at our leisure rather than someone we must submit to. Isn't that true? You know that's true. Trevor Wax describes the modern form that many self-centered gospels take as one where the message is to discover and express your unique sense of self no matter what others may say or do to challenge your freedom or personality. The narrative arc of your life is finding your personal route to happiness by following your heart, expressing your true self, and then fighting whoever would oppose you, your society, your family, your past, or your church. He goes on to claim that this is one of the dominant narratives of our times. It shows up in movies and music and increasingly on the platforms of popular preachers and teachers, both male and female. Or Dean and Sarah said, this is the Disneyfication of the Bible. When you believe in Jesus, he makes all your dreams come true. Jesus saves you from your sins, but he also is like the genie from Aladdin. This is the way that gospel can often be packaged, especially through pithy social media posts and popular preachers and songs. We could tend to think of our lives before Jesus like a house that's actually in pretty good condition, but, but it'd be even better if we added a sunroom on the back. We could go in when we want. <coughs> we can visit it to enjoy nice evenings, but it largely doesn't affect our lives too much. Rather than us joining in on what God is doing, we add Jesus to what we got going on. Isn't that true? He might improve it. He might help the property value, but all in all, he's just joining in on what we got going on. I remember when I was stationed in Alaska, this townhouse burned up. And it was in, of course, a townhouse, row of townhouses on base. And the firefighters were able to limit most of the damage to this one townhouse. But, but since it burned up, they couldn't just improve what was there, right? They had to completely gut it and redo it all. But once it was done, it kind of stuck out like a sore thumb, right? Because <laughs> it was new in a line of old townhouses. What we need is not to add Jesus to our lives. Like C.S. Lewis said, we aren't simply imperfect creature who needs improvement. We're rebels who must lay down our arms. We don't need Jesus to be a nice addition. We need Jesus to completely gut our lives and remake us. We need rebuilt, not improved. 
We need to join in on what God is doing in the world, not ask God to join in on our lives. Isn't it about a thousand times better and the highest privilege of all that we would be invited to join in on God's story of remaking the world rather than adding God to our own lives? Isn't that about a thousand times better? Luke is telling us that God has done a work, and that work continues to this day, and you can be part of it. What a privilege, right? He's telling us that we could join in God's story, but the means that means that Jesus must come in and permeate every area of your life and remake you. And to use your life for the kingdom of Christ so you will stick out like someone who has encountered this glorious king. Who were the people that Luke spoke to and then wrote what they said in this book? Verse 2. There were people who witnessed what Jesus did and said. They encountered him and they turned around and preached the message of Christ. Why? Because one cannot encounter the Jesus of Luke's gospel and remain the same or keep it to themselves. What did they preach? They preached the word, the word about Jesus, the word that is Jesus, not their own message and not for their own ends, but God's message, which they joined in with and couldn't help but talk about. Friend, can I ask, is that what describes you? Are you someone who has had an encounter with Jesus and now can't help but to talk about him, or do you keep him largely to yourself? Do you find that Jesus is a nice additive to your life? Or has he come and remade you and remakes you? Is Jesus something in a long list of things you have in your life that you could, quite frankly, take or leave, or is he everything to you? Luke wants us to know that God has worked, and God is working, and God will work in the world, and that he is inviting us into his story, but we must lay down our self-promotion and our self-will and our self-centeredness We must release the hold we have on our lives completely and be transformed from the inside out to where our allegiances and our desires and our motivations and our wills are informed by Jesus and not by us. And we can do this because, fourth and finally, Luke is telling the truth about assurance. Luke is telling the truth about assurance. Now, we've already explored that Luke is giving assurance that he is, what he is writing is accurate, right, and can be trusted. But consider another way that Luke gives assurance. If what Luke is saying is true, do you believe what he's saying is true? If God really did break into space and time and take on flesh and teach what Jesus taught and lived as Jesus lived, and died as Jesus died, and rose as Jesus rose, and ascended as Jesus ascended, then we could be assured that everything will turn out for God's glory and for the good of those who join in with God's salvation project. 
Who is this Theophilus fellow? Who is he? We don't know. Maybe he was a wealthy patron who hired Luke to undertake this task. Maybe he was a skeptic who wasn't quite sure about this new movement and wanted to discover it for himself. Maybe he was a believer who saw this new movement and early church suffer persecution and needed some reassurance that this was all part of God's plan. That's what I tend to favor. Listen to what Daryl Box said. He said, the gospel of Luke is about life and God's plan. It's a story written to a man, Theophilus, who in all likelihood was a believer who needed reassurance. A Gentile in the midst of what had originally been a Jewish movement, he seems to have been asking whether he really should be a Christian. Had God really called all nations to enter into life with God? Was the crucified Messiah the beacon of hope for both Jews and Gentiles? Would God really save through a ministry that ended with crucifixion? What about the endless obstacles the church was suffering and in getting its message out to the world? Might these obstacles not be a sign of God's judgment on a message gone awry rather than evidence of blessing? Questions like these probably haunted Theophilus. They're not unlike questions we might raise as we contemplate what God has done and imagine how we might have done it differently. See, if Luke is reporting with accuracy that all of this had been accomplished and fulfilled among us, that all this story about Jesus came about just as God intended before the foundation of the world and just as he had the prophets predicted, then you could trust that everything will work out in the end. The movement will not be thwarted. The church will not be killed. The gospel will go forth. And Jesus will get the glory in it all, even if it comes about through persecution and hardship. If if all of human history before 6 BC was pointing to God coming and taking on flesh then all of human history after 33 AD is pointing to the fact that this same God will win in the end. If his plans came about just like he said the first time, they will come about like he said until the end of time. (coughs) Is that not good news? Because all of history is pointing to Jesus. And all of history finds its yes and amen in him and his glory. We struggle with assurance too, don't we? I do. We struggle in our personal lives. We live with doubts, don't we? Uh, We see the state of the world and wonder what is going on. We see political unrest and we wonder if there's any reprieve. We we hurt in our relationships or struggle with uncertainty, wondering how anything, have you ever been in a spot where you're like, I can't imagine how anything good could come from this. Luke's gospel is here to assure you that not only has everything God planned come to fruition in the gospel, but that everything will work out his way in the end. All of history is pointing to God's king being fully inaugurated at the end of the age where every sad thing will come untrue. This is what Luke's telling us. Do you remember in C.S. Lewis's Lion, Witch, and Wardrobe? It takes nearly half the book before the audience is introduced to the great lion Aslan, who, of course, is a Jesus figure. It's kind of like what's going on here in redemption history, right? You've got to get to the center part of your Bible 
to get to Jesus taking on flesh. And when the reader does finally hear that name Aslan, he's merely described, he's spoken about, rather than appearing and interacting with the characters. And you, you might remember if you've read it, the main characters who are all siblings, they, they unwittingly, of course, find themselves in Narnia, and they find themselves in a precarious position where they feel frightened and, and worried and uncertain. And even their new friend has been captured and turned to stone by this evil white witch who, who just seems to be ruling. It's always winter and never Christmas, they say. And they're finally told that there is hope coming in the form of Aslan. In the first mention of him, Mr. Beaver says, they say Aslan is on the move, perhaps already landed. And when Mr. Beaver says that name Aslan, Lewis writes that something strange happened in the hearts of the sibling. And one of the siblings says, who is Aslan? Listen to this. He says, Mr. Beaver says, Aslan? Well, you don't know he's the king. He's the lord of the whole wood, but not often here. Never in my time or my father's time, but the word has reached us that he has come back. He's in Narnia at this moment. He'll settle the white queen all right. It is he, not you, that will save Mr. Tumnus. And so he says, she won't turn him into stone, said Edmund. Talking about the white witch. Mr. Beaver said, what a simple thing to say. Turn him into stone? If she can stand on her two feet and look him in the face, it'll be the most she could do and more than I expect of her. No, no. He will put all to rights, as it says in the old rhyme, these parts. Wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. When he bears his teeth, winter meets its death. And when he shakes his mane, we will have spring again. Luke is telling us that Aslan has landed, that he is on the move, that everything will be made right one day. He is saying that God's plan have never been thwarted before, and he doesn't plan to start now. He is assuring the Christian that not only can you believe what he writes is true, but that God will not abandon those who have joined into his story, and that all of human history is pointing to the day when God's Messiah, Jesus Christ, makes all things new. Isn't that good? Maybe that's you. Maybe you're struggling right now. Maybe you don't see that the God who moved heaven and earth to get to you will... Don't you see that the God who moved heaven and earth to get to you will not leave you now? And that his plans will never fail? And that even if you can't see how what you're going through could possibly work out for your good and his glory, that you could trust him whose hands all things rest? The same hands that are nail-scarred to purchase you and bring you in? Luke is sending us up to show us in this account that one, God always keeps his promises. And two, that Jesus is a central figure in all of human history. You think about those two things for a moment. Consider this in light of those two truths. Jesus is the central figure of history. Without him, there would be no Christianity and there would be ho no hope. And no religion can say that. No other religion can say that. Now get this. Jesus is the central figure in God's plan and in human history. And Christianity rises and falls with Christ. Even so, he wants to include you in his story and the mission of the kingdom. You. Luke shows us that here. Jesus invites you into his story that you could share in the benefits of his perfect life, his substitutionary death, his resurrection, and his future in God's presence forevermore. Shouldn't that be enough 
to animate you and spur you on to love and good deeds and spreading the gospel no matter the price? And so as we take this journey through Luke, you must answer the question that Whitfield posed in 1739, echoing Christ himself. Who is Jesus? And who is Jesus to you? N.T. Wright once said, how can you live with the terrifying thought that the hurricane has become human, that fire has become flesh, that life itself became life and walked in our midst? Christianity either means that or it means nothing. It is either the most devastating disclosure of the deepest reality of the world or it is a sham, a nonsense, a bit of deceitful play acting. Most of us are unable to quote cope with saying either of those things, condemn ourselves to live in the shallow, shallow world in between. Let's not settle for the shallow world in between. As we venture through this book, allow that hurricane to come devastate you, to come and wreck your categories, challenge your allegiances, remake you from the inside out, because when you encounter the true Jesus, you cannot leave unchanged.